Welcome to A Word from the Valley, a weekly podcast produced for you from Zion Lutheran Church in Middletown, Maryland. For more information about our faith community and our weekly worship services, visit us at zionmiddletown.org or find us on Facebook. We hope you have a great week, and God bless. For 50 days, 50 days, according to all four counts of the gospel, the church lived in a state of constant fear. The last time I preached here was April 16th, and the way the lectionary works was a little weird. I actually preached on this same gospel text because there's not too many um, gospel readings about the Holy Spirit. So the lectionary committee has to like kind of pick and choose which ones. We preached on this. And this is actually the first Easter evening after the resurrection. And John takes some time to spend talking about how the congregation, how the church was reacting to news of the resurrection. About how the congregation gathered behind locked doors because they were scared of what lies on the other side of those doors. And even after Jesus appears to their group, minus Thomas that week, the church didn't unlock their doors the next week. They gather yet again behind locked doors. They still gather in fear. And despite that fear, Jesus still shows up. And I said back in April that I think we are still a bit terrified 2,000 years later and reflected forbid on that fear. Pastor Diane, in her last sermon, before, while she was still mother of two boys, preached on the text from Luke, known as the road to Emmaus. She talked about how the two disciples were afraid. She focused on that line from Luke's gospel. It was just so poignant. For we had hoped. Which just says so much about what the disciples were feeling at that moment. On that first Easter evening. They thought Jesus was going to bring about so much change and then he was taken away from them. And now there are reports from the women that he's risen from the dead. The men. They don't believe it. They think the women are just gossiping. They had hoped. And they were scared. Truth be told, every single recount of the resurrection by the four gospel, by the four evangelists, while all a bit different, talk about the church being afraid in those post-resurrection days. In Matthew 28, verse 8, it is written, So the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Why say fear? Why not just say joy? Why, Why do you have to bring up the fear? Why did Matthew do that? In Mark's gospel, everyone runs from the tomb after the angel tells them the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And Mark says they ran away in terror and amazement and told nobody about this amazing good news because they were afraid. I find that odd and also equally intriguing that every gospel talks about the fear associated with the resurrection. I find it fascinating that almost all the post-resurrection accounts, the gospel writers talk not about the disciples being brave and courageous and riding off in the sunset on their white stallion horses, 
preach the good news, but instead talk about the disciples living in fear. Interesting, right? Last week in the Ascension of the story that we heard, you might have noticed that Luke has two very different accounts of the Ascension. Well, not really different, but they're a little different. In the first account, which is found in the Gospel of Luke, also known as Volume 1, Luke writes, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's the last line of the Gospel of Luke after Jesus ascends into heaven. But in the book of Acts, Volume 2, written about two years probably later, Luke writes that the church, instead of going back to the temple and blessing and praising God, instead they're doing this. Is that him? I swear I just saw him. He's somewhere up there. No, wait, that's just cloud. That's what the church was doing. And instead, Luke talks about how two men in white appear and tell them to stop it. They say, quit staring off in the sky wondering when Jesus is going to come back. Quit staring in the past longing for the good old days when everything just seemed great and wonderful and there was no conflict whatsoever, right? I really think Luke wrote the ending of his gospel thinking that it would inspire his congregation to go back to the temple and continually bless and praise God. But instead, human nature took over. The church went back to dreaming of how great things used to be and how nothing in the future will ever compare to the good old days. Luke adds a little bit of theology in the beginning book of Acts to call the church to task. That the days of living in fear were soon going to come to an end. The Easter season, despite all the hope that comes on Easter Sunday, it's quite frankly a very scary time of the year. You got people coming back from the dead. You got people hiding behind locked doors. You got some people who are running away. And you got others who are nostalgic. I mean, once you get past Easter Sunday, as, a, as a, today, with the large crowds and the special music, it's easy to fall into a bit of pit of a despair. You know, and, and to be honest, as I think about all this, thinking about the 11 years of ordained ministry, I, I feel like my whole ministry could probably be summed up as living in a constant state of fear. See, I had this weird superpower. I wish I could fly or had super strength, but I, I overthink things. That's, that's my superpower. I can, if you... If I have to go into any kind of meeting or anything and I look at the agenda, I think about everybody who's sitting around the table, I think about all the agenda items, and I think about what everyone could possibly say for and against that. I, and I think about every worst case scenario so that when I show up to that meeting, I'm prepared for whatever might come my way. And if I go into a meeting where there's no agenda, man, I just, I'm off the rails. I am completely losing it because I think of every worst case possible in the area to the nth degree. This skill that I have has been a great tool in keeping my ministry pretty much conflict-free for 11 years. I rarely make waves in a congregation because I've been really good at keeping the status quo the status quo. Granted, I might have a sermon that pushes a few of us out of our comfort zones, but it happens once or twice a year. For 11 years, I have been afraid of saying or doing Something that might cost me my job, my livelihood, the way I put a roof over my family's heads and food on our dinner table. 
For 11 years, I have lived in a post-Easter, pre-Pentecostal ministry. And I got to say, I'm not so proud of that. Because it's really exhausting living in fear. And this past month, I think I have been the most scared my entire life. Seeing James taken to the NICU emeritus. Hearing how he had a possible blockage, seeing it on the x-ray. Facing surgery to repair the damage to his colon due to Hirschsprungs, I had been very afraid. I remember sitting in the NICU room holding James one afternoon at Hopkins, letting my mind run wild, thinking about all the worst-case scenarios that could possibly happen, just simply finally saying to myself, I'm tired of living in fear. And I was. The first time I went and saw James at the NICU, my wife, it's like six in the morning, I'm tired, I haven't slept well, I'm worried about James. My wife looks at me and she says to me, you can do hard things. And I so need to hear that. Because the first time driving down to Hopkins and seeing him in his NICU bed was absolutely terrifying. But I knew I couldn't leave. I couldn't just walk away and hide in the waiting room, waiting till the doctors come and tell me the news. James needed me. And I learned something from that experience of being terrified. The most important step in facing one's fears is to simply show up. For 50, years, the church, for 50 days, the church gathered in fear. They lived for, fe- for 50 days with fears of being captured, killed, tortured, embarrassed, mocked, and ridiculed. They hid behind closed doors waiting, waiting for something to happen. And one day, 50 days after that first terrifying day, the Holy Spirit showed up. The Spirit showed up and breathed chaos into the room. Luke says in verse 2 of the reading from Acts, a violent wind rushed, swept through the whole house. The first Pentecost was filled with chaos, yet nowhere in the reading from Acts that Jennifer read to us today does Luke say the church was afraid. And be clear, Luke has been very transparent about the disciples being afraid, gladly pointing out their fear. But not this time. In the midst of the chaos, they come outside and begin speaking the good news, speaking in languages they have never learned, and their message of good news is being heard by people from all corners of the earth. Parthians, Mede, Elamites, and residents in Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, just to name a few. And Peter, who 53 days ago denied ever knowing Jesus or being one of his followers, Peter stands up and begins to preach. The church went from hiding behind locked doors to preaching on the street corners the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit changed that ragtag bunch of disciples into apostles. People who were sent out to the world with a message of good news. The days of living in fear, it seemed, were over. These men and women stood up to some of the most powerful governments and officials the world had ever seen. They were fearless in their work, despite the fact that this message was going to lead them not to riches and great fame, but to their deaths. Acts records numerous times the disciples being thrown into jail. 
And though Luke rarely mentions or records an execution in the book of Acts, it's pretty clear that all would eventually be killed for their message. This all took place not because of the disciples, but in spite of the disciples. This all took place because the Spirit showed up and entered into the locked doors of the church. All because the Spirit entered the chaos of the early church and gave them the strength to face their fears, to unlock their doors and enter the world in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Sitting in that NICU room, holding James, who's hooked up to all kinds of monitors and suctions and pumps, scared out of my mind about the future of my, for my son, I remember sitting and thinking, I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of going through life afraid of the good news, afraid of what might happen. I'm tired of avoiding conflict. I'm tired of it all. That if I can face one of my greatest fears of seeing my son so sick, then I can do anything. That if I'm going to continue to serve in the ELCA as a pastor that, statistically speaking, has been on a decline since its inception, then I'm going to go, if I'm going to do that, then I'm going to go out, out in the blaze of glory. Instead of hiding my offense, wondering, how every single situation could possibly go wrong in my ministry. You know, I'm tired of hearing about all the mistakes that have been made by the church, by Zion over the years, instead of hearing about the amazing ministry that has, that has and is taking place here. You know, I'm tired of being sick and tired. And truthfully, I hope that you're at this point too. I hope you're at this point. We're tired of going to meetings where we only focus on our failures rather than our successes. I hope you're at this point. We are tired of preserving a museum of our past instead of living into the wonderful future that God is sending before us. God sent the Holy Spirit to a bunch of uneducated, poor men and women 2,000 years ago, and they set the world on fire with the good news. We have so many tools and resources at our disposal than those early followers had back then. I mean, for one thing, I can preach from this. It, it goes up and down. I don't have to turn the pages anymore. We have air conditioning and heat and lights that won't catch your clothes on fire. Right? We live in an amazing country where religious persecution for Christians is almost non-existent. The first church was meeting in rented rooms. Look at what we have. Look at our upper room. God has indeed blessed us, but despite all of our blessings, we still act like those disciples on the first Easter Sunday morning. If you are sick and tired of feeling this way, of feeling hopeless, let's stop it. Let's make a change. Because we have the Holy Spirit who is ready to lead us to take us on paths yet untrodden to destinations yet unknown. Those early apostles set the world on fire with nothing more than clothes on their backs and a staff in their hands. Look at what we have to set the world on fire. Imagine how we could set the world on fire if we get out of the survival, conflict avoidance mentality and be the church today. There are five young women today who after three years of preparation, discernment, and prayer will affirm their faith first given to them in their baptism. These five young women are going to light the world on fire. But church, if you treat these young women as saviors, they're going to disappoint you. 
These young women are amazing, hardworking, determined, and they're certainly filled with the Holy Spirit. One day, I hope one of them will be standing in the place of Mr. Jeff and Mr. Ken teaching the basics of faith to a whole new generation of believers. I really hope one day that one of these young women will be kneeling on that step there as a stole is placed over their shoulders and become a pastor in Christ's church. I know these young women are going to light the world on fire, but they're not Jesus. They're not our Savior. Nobody in this church is our Savior other than Jesus. And to make anyone else the Savior other than Jesus is a heresy. I think we got to stop saying things like, you know, such and such saved Zion. We need to see that each and every one of us are important to the body of Christ. And the ministry we do here at Zion cannot hang on mere mortals like you and me. Because we're merely just caretakers of this ministry God has blessed us here with. The only person who has saved Zion is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, though, has equipped each and every one of us with certain gifts. This community of faith is made up of a variety of gifts, and the Holy Spirit has brought us all together so that each of our gifts might be used in our missional work. These young women, they're going to make mistakes, just like we all make mistakes. They will probably disappoint us, just like we all disappoint one another from time to time. But the thing about the Holy Spirit is that despite our mistakes and our disappointments, God does amazing things. Eliana, Allie, Amber, Sophie, and where's Savannah? Savannah. There you are, Savannah. Your job is not to save the world or the church. People of God, your job today is not to save the world or the church. We got a Savior, and he's pretty good at his job. Your job, your holy task is to take to the world this message of hope, love, and salvation. The Holy Spirit is here and has always been here and will continue to lead and guide God's holy church here on earth until the end of time. The Holy Spirit is with you, so take to the world the promise of life and abundance. Your task is to leave here sick and tired of feeling hopeless and instead to be the hope, to bring the hope that this world so longs to hear. Amen. Come Holy Spirit.